My name is Erin Kenny. I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. In today's episode, I am joined by Corey Ruth, who is a registered dietitian, fellow PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome sister, and woman's health expert. She struggled for years with irregular periods and ovulatory cycles and weight gain, even though she spent the majority of her time focusing on healthy eating and exercise. So because PCOS is the leading cause of infertility, this is a really important topic. And when I've dove into the research, there is a strong link between our gut microbiota and our risk for PCOS or our symptoms of PCOS. So I wanted to highlight this uh, beginning quote from published in the Gut Microbes in 2021. Um, it's a review, and it says, as the gut microbiota exerts various effects on the intestinal milieu, which influences distant organs and pathways, it's considered to be a full-fledged endocrine organ. The microbiota plays a major role in the reproductive endocrine system through a woman's lifetime by interacting with estrogen, androgens, insulin, and other hormones. An imbalance in the gut microbiota composition can lead to several diseases and conditions such as pregnancy complications, adverse pregnancy outcomes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, and cancer. So we are very lucky to have Corey with us today as she sits on the medical advisory board of co-fertility, and she's going to share some amazing gems with us today about how to manage your PCOS if you've been diagnosed, or maybe you haven't, and she will shed some light onto some of the symptoms as well. So without further ado, let's dive in. All right. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. Oh my gosh, thanks for coming on. You've got a baby in one hand and it's pretty impressive. That will be a first for, for my podcast. Oh yeah, all right. Woo, yes, all right. Making waves, paving yeah. paths. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really excited to have you on today. I know um, with my listeners at least, PCOS tends to be a topic that really gains a lot of interest and I think part of that is that the majority of the people that follow me on Instagram are female, and it is something that is incredibly prevalent today, as you know, because this is your expertise. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So PCOS is super common, and it's a lot more common than we might think. It's about 10 to 15% of women um, have PCOS, polycystic ovary or ovarian syndrome, Um, And it is also the leading cause of infertility, which is another topic that we can dive into if we want to. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some of the main symptoms that you see as being some big red flags um, for people that have PCOS? Yeah, so um, there's a few things to consider. Um, One of them is irregular periods. So a, a kind of a, a classically defined regular period would be anywhere between roughly 21 to 35 days. So if you're not having a period at all, or if your period's coming like every 21 and then, you know, 37 and then 45 days, 
Or if you're bleeding just like all the time, nonstop spotting here, spotting there, maybe that's a period over here. Um, any, there's no clear pattern for irregular periods in PCOS. So any of those could fit the PCOS description of an irregular period. So that's a big tip off. Um, now there are other, other causes of that, but that's a very, very classic PCOS symptom. Um, another one is symptoms of elevated androgens, which are our male sex hormones. And women have those like those um, hormones like uh, testosterone, just in the same way men have estrogen, we just typically make them in smaller amounts. So when they're elevated, a lot of times in women PCOS, it can cause things like facial and body hair growth, uh, hair loss on the head, acne, and a big difficulty with weight loss. So, um, so that's something to look out for. And then if you go to the doctors and get some testing done, you can maybe see those elevations in those androgens like testosterone or DHEAS. Um, and then also if you get a pelvic ultrasound, you, you might have what are called polycystic ovaries. So basically these little tiny, they're really not cysts, not the same type that can rupture and cause pain. You know, we hear women sometimes say, oh, I had a, I had a grapefruit sized cyst and it burst and it was horrible. That's not, pain is not a symptom of PCOS, which is a big misunderstanding in a lot of, you know, the, the community and people diagnosed um, what those are, those little cysts are really just underdeveloped immature follicles. And those follicles hold potentially an egg to be released for ovulation. So in PCOS, they're all kind of competing and nobody's winning. That's how I describe it. Mm -hmm. So um, th that's to say though, you know, PCOS is very complex. So you don't have to have all of those symptoms in order to have PCOS. You know, it, it can kind of cherry pick and, um, and show very differently in, in different women. Okay. Excellent. That was such a, such a great overview for people because I think it can be really confusing for people to kind of parse through, you know, first yeah. self-diagnosis is usually never a good idea because, you know, you're kind of going down a rabbit hole and then you're, yeah. you know, Googling things and getting all types of advice on the, the net, which is not ideal. So true. Yes. <laughs> Very. Um, when it comes to fertility, why is it that women with PCOS um, have more issues with fertility? I mean, it makes sense based on what you said that if you're having irregular periods, um, you know, I know you're a big advocate for tracking your cycle and, you know, figuring out when you're ovulating, like basal body temperature tracking. So that's probably part of it, right, is you don't necessarily know when you would be ovulating, are you ovulating, but what are some of the main reasons why it's so challenging for someone with PCOS to get pregnant? Good question. So the reason why PCOS is the leading cause of infertility is because women with PCOS ovulate either irregularly or not at all. So ovulation is, you know, we all think of our period as kind of, you know, the, the star of the show when we're talking about our cycle, but really what precedes a period is called ovulation and ovulation is essential in order to get pregnant. If you are not ovulating, there is a 0% chance that you can get pregnant outside of a, you know, working with a reproductive endocrinologist or something like the IVF. Um, so you have to have that happening. And if you're not ovulating, you're not going to get a regular period. So the, a big problem with PCOS too is that we are the number one top, you know, um, recommendation as far as treatment goes is birth control. So 
oftentimes we, and I say we, because I have PCOS and that's why I got into this. Um, but we are given birth control at a really young age, you know, 15, 16, even younger sometimes. And when we are in our say twenties or thirties and we're ready to start our family, we come off birth control and then boom, we're hit with all of these PCOS symptoms that the birth control pill or whatever form had been kind of keeping under wraps. So we realize that we're not actually ovulating regularly. And so if you think about, uh, say, a woman without PCOS who ovulates every month, she has that, you know, 28 day, whatever, 30 day cycle. Um, she has theoretically, you know, 12 chances of pregnancy per year. And if a woman with PCOS ovulates twice in the year, she's only got two chances. And every, every cycle, even if you have, you time intercourse perfectly, the average woman only has a 25% chance of pregnancy during that particular cycle. So you can see that, you know, the big difference between that two versus 12 chances. Um, and so that's, that's really the leading, the, the number one reason why it's so difficult. And then also once we do get pregnant, um, we do, we are at a slightly higher risk for miscarriage. And we're also at a higher risk for certain pregnancy complications like um, gestational diabetes and preeclampsia. Okay cause all kinds of stuff, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now in terms of, you know, someone's pregnancy journey with, um, PCOS, a few questions that I think should be answered just cause I feel like as women, we're not typically very well educated about this yeah. stuff in general. And, right. you know, can you still get a period and not ovulate? That would be the first question. Good question. So no, it wouldn't be a true period, but you can bleed and it might look like a period. Usually it looks, it's a little, it has different characteristics. Like someone will bleed for two weeks. Okay. And that's a big tip off that that's not a normal period. Um, Or maybe they just spot kind of, and it's super, super light. Um, It's not that like red flow that we're used to when, when we get a real period. So you can bleed and that's called anovulatory bleeding. We see that a lot in PCOS, um, which is why I am a big advocate for tracking your cycle, because if you track your cycle, you will know, yes, that was an ovulatory period or yeah, no, I bled, but it didn't come after ovulation and it wasn't a real period. Okay. So um, in order to get a real period, you have to ovulate, but you can still bleed without ovulating. I know that's confusing, but that's the best way to, to describe that. And well, you need to ovulate to get pregnant, right? So that is a very big point to make and kind of hit home that someone listening might say, say like, well, I bleed once a month, so I'm, I should be fine. But if you're not ovulating, as Corey's alluding to, then something to maybe look into. Is there anything that you suggest, like specific apps or um, devices that you like for basal body temperature tracking? Yeah. Yeah. So cycle tracking is a whole big world and um, we can cover, you know, super, super basics, but you, you can track your, you know, uh, cervical mucus. You can track your, um, you can use what are called ovulation predictor kits, which can help kind of predict ovulation coming on. But the only way to confirm ovulation is happening outside of a doctor's office, getting an ultrasound all the time, is what's called a BBT basal body temperature thermometer. And what that does is it tracks your basal body temperature, your temperature basically. And you track it every day and your temperature, your body temperature actually rises after ovulation. 
And that's because after, after ovulation, you're producing progesterone. And progesterone is what is essential for a pregnancy to be maintained. And it heats the body up really subtly, but it heats it up enough to show on these really, really sensitive thermometers. So that's what I would recommend. And my top recommendation of that device, of all those devices, is called TempDrop. Mm. Uh, it's one word, T-E-M-P-D-R-O-P. And I have a highlight on TempDrop on my Instagram page um, with kind of all, all the info, all the goodies there. But that one is really cool because traditional BBT thermometers, you have to wake up at the same time every day and take your temperature. So if you're somebody who wants to sleep in on a Saturday or you oversleep or, you know, something like that, which applies to a lot of us, um, or you have different, you know, varying schedule, it's, it's a tough thing to do and stay consistent with. So the cool part about temp drop is it is a, a wearable BBT. So you put it on at night and you take it off in the morning, anytime, whatever time, and it tracks your temperature all night long and it spits out an average and that's your BBT temp for the day. So it's very convenient. Um, and I find much higher rates of compliance, which means more success when it comes to tracking and pregnancy or avoiding pregnancy um, than the traditional BBT. So I love that one. And that's the one that I have been recommending for years. Yeah, I gave up pretty quickly on the the manual um, temperature uh-huh. taking. I remember the, the temperature I had, it would make even like a beeping sound. And I'd, and I'd be you know laying next to my boyfriend and it'd be beeping in the morning I'm like this is not realistic I lasted probably a week right I know Temp drop no beeping okay all right good to know um you mentioned the birth control point I did want to kind of come back to that I think this is something you probably see a lot of is that masking of the symptoms Um, Mm -hmm. would you say, and I don't know if you can answer this, but would you say that the longer someone's on birth control, the more challenging it will be for them to maybe get pregnant after, you know, dealing with PCOS and kind of having that band-aid symptom, or would you say it really depends Mm -hmm. on the person? Have you seen any research on that at all? So yes and no. Um, uh, Research will tell us again and again that no, it has no effect. I will say, though, some forms, like I just saw some research on the Depro Provera shot, and it can prevent or make ovulation really funky for up to like two years after stopping it. Mm-hmm. So some forms, yes, but I, from what I know of the pill, um, I, you know, the IUD, I don't know much on that one. I'm going to say it's probably similar to the pill in that no, like it. If you're on it a really long time, it it shouldn't have any impact on your ability to get pregnant. But I will say, though, kind of from the lifestyle point of view, I I would say yes, because we're not in tune with our hormones, obviously, when we're on hormonal birth control. And that's because our natural hormones are essentially kind of put to sleep and it's replaced by they are replaced by synthetic forms. So um, we start to learn different pieces of our body that and our hormones that we weren't really in tune with before. And that might be confusing. It might be, um, you know, we might be moodier or have, you know, more acne or so, you know, that doesn't really affect fertility, but I would say just as a whole kind of reintroducing ourselves to ourselves, um, you know, post coming off of all those synthetic hormones may pose a challenge. We're talking about tracking our cycles and understanding ovulation. And, you know, it's kind of like a new language. Um, So research versus lifestyle, yes and no, but that's a really good question. And I'm sure a lot of, a lot of folks wonder that. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see if there will be much research done on the impacts of um, IUDs in particular, because I've worked with some clients and have some anecdotal reports of people experiencing, you know, just kind of unknown symptoms with otherwise healthy individuals and that being kind of like the last factor and maybe them having them removed and feeling better. So I'm just, I'm very curious and would love to see if anything in the future comes out with that because it's, it's a great option, right? For people that, especially the non-hormonal ones of people Mm -hmm. looking for options for ways to, you know, practice, um, some sort of birth control without having, you know, the, the hormonal aspect of it. Totally. And, and they've become a lot more popular and common. Like I remember in college, no one was on an IUD. It was like this weird thing that was like on the poster of your doctor's office. It's like, well, no, it's not even an option. And now I feel like every other woman I meet who's on birth control is on Marina or Kylina or Skylar or something like that. So very interesting. I, what I think that they should do is just come up with a male altern- alternative. Um, like, where is that? It's 2022. Come on, let's do this. Yeah, uh, just so I agree. <laughs> like, look, come on. I will sign the petition for that whenever you come I up with that. that. <laughs> yeah. I just remember, it's funny, this girl in college, she, had, she was the only person I had ever heard of on an IUD and she described it to me. We were in chemistry lab and I remember her walking me through the process and she's like, yeah, I passed out. And, you know, my dad's a doctor, so he recommended, I'm like, that sounds horrible. I'm going to stick with my, you know, NuvaRing, whatever at the time. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I just remember, I was like, I can imagine that stories like that didn't exactly encourage people, but I, I would right. imagine that a lot of the push now towards the IUDs is this information that we now have gathered on, you know, the negative role that, you know, these hormones can play in the gut microbiome and depletion of certain vitamins and minerals and just the way people feel, you know, people reporting low libido and, you know, more anxiety, things like that. So I'm curious, but male birth control sounds great. I love the idea of that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what else does PCOS impact other than fertility? Like what, what are some of the other, because I feel like people don't typically talk about that. They focus just on the kind of gynecological aspect of it. Right. Gosh, there's a lot. Um, So we have data on women with PCOS having higher levels of inflammatory markers in their blood. Um, and that can kind of, you know, there's obviously we've learned a lot about this recently, not recently, but semi-recently with inflammation and like inflammation's connection to everything in the body as far as disease and, um, health issues. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, you know, complexities there, but, um, Another, another thing that I find really interesting is that uh, research shows that women with PCOS have about three times higher risk of anxiety and depression. And, you know, just kind of working in this field for years and years, almost every, I, and I don't take one-on-one clients anymore, but almost every single woman that I would take as a one-on-one client um, in recent years had anxiety, depression, or both. And, you know, after a while, I was like, gosh, is it just like, is it just everyone out there anxious and depressed or is it PCOS, you know, and kind of, so that, that statistic really hit home for me working in the field. Um, And it does make sense, you know, if if we're not ovulating, our hormones are imbalanced and hormones can so, so, so greatly impact our mood. Um, And we know estrogen can be a little bit anxiety inducing. And when we're not producing progesterone to balance it out, we see this kind of anxious state. 
all the time. Progesterone is kind of our calm, chill, you know, I want to hang out in my sweatpants and watch Netflix, you know, on the couch kind of hormone. Um, and when we're not producing that, we've just got this unopposed estrogen, which has all kinds of potential implications in the body, but um, the tie to mood is huge. So I, I see that a lot. And I don't think we talk enough about that. Um, some other issues with, with PCOS, uh, fatigue and cravings, huge, because with PCOS, we've got this insulin issue. And um, I mean, we see women just with crippling fatigue and they can't understand what's going on, how to fix it. And then of course that doesn't pave the way for healthy habits. You know, if they're wanting to start a new exercise routine, but they're like crawling on the floor by 3 PM, that's not, you know, going to lend itself to helping them with their goals. Um, and then the cravings is huge, you know, imbalanced blood sugar and insulin resistance, all this stuff can really make those carb sugar cravings really intense. And that messes with your mind. You know, I, a lot of women are just so frustrated with that because they're like, no, like I'm smart. I have willpower, but these cravings are so intense and they just like can take over. And then again, they're not aiding them in their health goals. You know, if they're working on weight loss, which is already difficult with all the hormonal issues, um, then, you know, that, that just kind of compounds the problem. And we also see issues with cortisol, higher levels of cortisol, which is cortisol is our stress hormone. So um, this whole adrenal component to PCOS is huge. And this kind of um, inability to deal with stressors and the physical manifestations of stress can just be really intense, especially if you have more adrenal-paced PCOS, um, where maybe you don't have the weight issue or you don't have the insulin issue, but this adrenal piece can be so huge um, and really detrimental. So those are a few things that PCOS can kind of influence and impact negatively that we don't always talk about, you know, in the doctor's office. I think that's really important that you brought up the uh, mental health aspect of it as well, right? Because right. that's a tough one. I mean, you know, anyone with any sort of chronic disease um, or health condition, it can be very challenging navigating that and feeling like yourself and, you know, going about your daily life in a really positive manner when you're just, you're physically not yourself. It's tough. Right. I know. So true. Yeah. It's, it's tough. So in terms of supplementation, um, you've got a fantastic line of supplements, many of which I am very familiar with. Um, you know, magnesium, probably one of my favorite, uh, minerals, um, but can you share, um, you know, you've clearly done extensive research in this area. What are some of your favorite um, supplements that you think are like the biggest bang for your buck for PCOS and maybe kind of why, like what do they actually do? Sure. Yeah. So from my line, um, the androgen blocker and the cortisol calmer are the most popular ones for a good reason. Um, the androgen blocker helps to encourage lower levels of testosterone and other androgens like DHT and DHEA, which can cause what we call hirsutism, which is facial and body hair growth in women. That's a really frustrating symptom because it's so physical and, you know, women are so self-conscious of that, obviously. So that's a huge one. We've seen a lot of success with the androgen blocker there also in acne and androgen related hair loss. So if someone with PCOS has ever had elevated testosterone or any of those male sex hormones, the androgen blocker can be a really amazing supplement because it doesn't have side effects like metformin or, you know, spironolactone, which is what a lot of us are, are given prescription wise. 
So that's a great one. And then the cortisol calmer is a really great one for stress. And, you know, I always say, I mean, that you can't out supplement a stressful lifestyle, but the cortisol calmer is super soothing and it gets you to sleep and it helps you stay asleep. That alone is huge um, because if you are dealing with these stress issues and you're not sleeping, you're already having fatigue from your blood sugar problems. Um, the cortisol calmer can be just a really excellent addition to your bedtime routine. And a lot of women love it. It's also helpful just kind of for increasing resiliency for stress and tolerance to overwhelm. And that can always be helpful for everyone. Um, so those are my two most popular, uh, the magnesium also great for mood, insulin, you know, sleep, digestion, all of the above. Um, the supplement that I also really like that I don't manufacture is called Ovacetol. And that I have another highlight on my Instagram called Ovacetol, but that one is um, basically a blend of two different inositols. And that is a vitamin like substance that's really helpful for balancing blood sugar. It's also great for egg quality. So it's a good one for men and women who are trying to conceive. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful supplement as well. Awesome. Great. Yeah. The, your cortisol one has, it's got ashwagandha and rhodiola. Those are two of my absolute favorite adaptogens. I'm a huge fan um, you know, I, I actually use those on a daily basis. So really, really like this. Yes. Yeah. And women without PCOS can you, you know, use the cortisol calmer. Yeah. Um, it's honestly helpful for, for anybody, but we just know that a lot of women with PCOS struggle with those issues. So that's why it's kind of geared towards, towards them, but anybody can take that, the cortisol calmer. That's great. So tell me, um, this is a common question and I know it's probably pretty nuanced, but are there certain foods that, um, should be avoided with PCOS? I know there's a lot of, um, you know, fear mongering on social media about, you know, you shouldn't have this, you should cut out gluten or dairy. Um, what is your experience been? I mean, you know, especially when you were doing one-on-one coaching, you know, you can speak to the research, that would be great too. But also like from your own experience, maybe even personally, um, were there any foods that you found were, I don't know, maybe there was a trend that either exacerbated someone's symptoms or vice versa? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, lots of misinformation out there on the good old World Wide web and social media. Um, I think the biggest one that we hear with PCOS is gluten and dairy, and we have to eliminate those to treat our PCOS effectively. Um, in reality, we have zero research studies that state it's beneficial to take those out of your diet when you have PCOS. So I think why that's such a, um, a quick kind of bandwagon to hop on is because it's something, it's a very like just simple thing, right? Take this out and you're going to be good to go, which as we know, health, nutrition, and PCOS is entirely more complex than that. Um, but I think the number one thing that I see when women do eliminate gluten and dairy is there's a couple reasons why I think it's most helpful um, is because gluten and dairy, at least here in the U.S., is in like everything. Mm-hmm. If you go out to eat, I mean, you really have to try hard to find a dish that doesn't have gluten and dairy and it's probably a salad and you're going to have to eat it without the cheese or the creamy dressing. So you're left with like this very low carbohydrate meal. If you take gluten and dairy out of your diet in your own home, um, you're really paying attention to being conscious of what you're eating, right? You're for the first time, maybe you're looking at the nutrition facts or the, the ingredients that is more helpful than anything, because all of a sudden you are being conscious of your intake. 
-hmm. And maybe previously you didn't care or you didn't know how to care. So, uh, or that you should care is what I meant. So, um, so that can be one reason why it's so helpful to take those out, but you don't need to eliminate them to see success with PCOS at all. And, you know, there's really no one food to avoid with PCOS. It's really about how much and when. So you want to be eating, focusing more on protein and fiber and fats and less on carbs. But would I recommend completely eliminating carbohydrates? No, that's really hard to do. It's very restrictive. And PCOS, there's no cure. You have it forever. So you need to find something that's going to work for you for the long run. And so, you know, elimination diets and taking all these things out, this and that, and soy and sugar, it's never going to be helpful long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can absolutely get 100% control of your PCOS while still eating the foods that you love, but, you know, working with somebody to help you modify how your, your plates and your meals and your snacks really look like what's the proportion of those foods. Excellent. Um, so the only thing I will say is with dairy, that's the only one we have research on when it comes to acne, um, dairy can potentially exacerbate acne. So it doesn't cause acne, but if you are someone who already struggles with acne, you could try taking dairy out and that may be helpful for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, we have no research and, you know, it's, um, most of the time when women take those out, it's, they see success because their options become very limited and they're being more conscious of what they're eating and ingredients and labels and macros and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, there's, there's no one food to avoid. You can really eat anything, but yeah, focusing on protein, fiber, and fat and paring down the the number of carbs that you're eating throughout the day, you know, at a given meal can be really, really helpful. Sure. And don't know if you can answer this either, but thoughts on intermittent fasting for PCOS, would you say yay or nay? Um, nay. So intermittent fasting, the majority of research studies that we have on it are done on men, have been done on men and women are not small men and PCOS, women who have PCOS are, are very different than women who don't. So um, we don't have a ton of research demonstrating its effectiveness and actually from a blood sugar balance standpoint, which is really where we're working from when it comes to nutrition and PCOS, we're always focused on that, whether or not somebody has, you know, air quotes, classically defined insulin resistance. So blood sugar balance is huge. And we really aim to keep blood sugar balance really steady at you throughout the day. We don't want to avoid food for a really long time, have our blood sugar dip. And then we eat this gigantic meal and our blood sugar and our insulin skyrockets. And we've got these big peaks and valleys. We want to keep it really stable. So I recommend three meals a day and two protein rich snacks per day, generally. Um, That's just a general guideline. But um, the other thing about intermittent fasting is Again, we have to find something that's going to work for us long-term and it's really hard to, it's restrictive. It's hard to carry that out for years and years and years. Um, And we really have to, you know, put the joy back into eating because there's so much fear when it comes to food and PCOS. So um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that for for those reasons. Excellent. Well, thank you for walking through that. That's really helpful. How about physical activity? Is there like a type of physical activity that's maybe better or worse for PCOS? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I recommend a variety. I recommend some cardio, some strength training or resistance exercises, and what I call 
restorative workouts. So those are things like yoga, walking, slow biking, hiking, these things that are going to be really great for stress and adrenals and um, mood. So kind of a mix of all three of those and exercise and movement is so, so, so important. It's important for stress reduction, mood, obviously, like I just mentioned, but also for blood sugar control. And, you know, a lot of us live such sedentary lives, especially since COVID and working from home. Um, so if you don't, you know, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to, to help your PCOS, you know, simply just doing a little bit of movement a few times a week can be so much more helpful than not doing anything at all. So, um, yeah, there's kind of like with food, there's no one exercise to completely avoid. However, you know, everything in moderation, if, you know, if you're doing CrossFit, would I recommend CrossFit seven days a week? No, I've actually seen that backfire in clients. Um, but if you want to do a CrossFit or maybe a hit class once or twice a week, great, but balance it out with some other things like some, you know, one of those restorative workouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And proper fueling too, which you already mentioned is, you know, key for physical activity. So if you're not properly fueling, physical activity is, you know, something that you can't really even prioritize if you're not fueling for it. Getting a dog definitely could help you if you're listening and you've been thinking (laughs) about getting a dog. I got a dog and it's like, you know, she's, when she's a puppy, we're going out three times a day. And I was like, I was going out anyway, but now I have more of an excuse and it's more fun. So, and you've got, I saw you on, on Instagram the other day, you were on the elliptical, I think with, with the baby <laughs> taking mom to momming to a new level, I think. is Right. Yeah. Don't, don't get a baby if you want to be outside <laughs> exercising because it backfires also. I didn't all the time. No. Um, yeah. You know, you got to make it work. <laughs> Do yeah. the best you can. <laughs> exactly. I love that. Um, Is there anything else that you would add? Like, is there any part of your own PCOS story that you would like to share that you feel like would like maybe something you wish you would have known? I mean, you've gone through a successful pregnancy and have, you know, a healthy child now. Is there anything that you feel like you would like to share with the listeners? Yeah. um, I think just, you know, the reason why I got into this field is because I like, you know, myself and also so many women with PCOS have experiences, just this kind of frustration in the healthcare community, unfortunately. Um, there's We just don't know enough about PCOS and we're not educated on it. And so when we go and seek treatment, I mean, we're having these symptoms like, you know, really random periods all over the place, which makes our mood everywhere all over the place. Um, or we can't get pregnant, or um, you know, we're growing a mustache. These are these are really tough things to deal with. And when we go to the doctor, you know, we're just given the birth control pill or whatever birth control form um, as a treatment, or we're told to just lose weight, but we're not given any guidance on how to do that. Or we're told to just come back when we want to get pregnant, which is um, not good enough for for us. And I'm speaking for all women with PCOS. That's why you know, I got in this field to also be an advocate for women with PCOS because it's not enough and we deserve better care. Um, not all of us want to take birth control. It can be really helpful for some. And I'm definitely in no, in no way anti-birth control. Like it's a great option for some women, but my goal is to help women become aware that it's not the only option, right? There are other things we can do to help with our hormones, to help with our uh, with pregnancy prevention, you know, we talked about cycle tracking. There's a whole whole world of that, um, and just to give more options to women and help them feel less alone and less uh, less lost, I guess, because it's a big world with all this swirling 
you know, info. Some of it's totally BS. I see so many, when I first got into this field, there were maybe like one or two, maybe three PCOS Instagram accounts. Now there's hundreds. And a lot of them are, are run by people who have no credentials, no license, no education. They just decided to be PCOS experts. And it's like, wait a minute. And they, they could potentially give really detrimental and harmful information. So um, I also want to be a source of, you know, evidence-based information when it comes to PCOS and uh, and how to get control of your symptoms. There's also a lot of, um, you know, with, with the whole weight issue with PCOS, it's, it's a lot harder for us to lose weight and maintain the weight loss that we've had. Um, and there's so much that can fuel eating disorders and, you know, restriction and elimination. And then we get see binging and all this ugly stuff. And um, I, you know, stepping into kind of the weight management space, I really wanted to be someone who could say, yes, you can work on weight management, but you don't have to hate your body to do it. And you can also do it in a way that actually feels good and is sustainable. And it's something that you can feel good about. And you don't have to beat yourself up when you fall off the wagon and then regain it all back. And, you know, that vicious cycle that I see. So um, I guess, yeah, just in summary, anyone listening who has PCOS, you're totally not alone. And, um, you know, even me who works in healthcare has been in that same position of I have PCOS, what do I do about it? And then feeling really frustrated by the lack of care that I've received in the doctor's office. So, and it's not always a doctor's fault. They're busy, you know, um, they've got a huge long line schedules and um, they can only do so much. So you know, it's it's nice to be able to kind of fill that void as a dietitian to kind of bridge the gap between PCOS care and nutrition because the connection is so critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And I'm sure yeah. a lot of people will appreciate that. And you have such great content on your um, Instagram account, which I think is very refreshing. And that's one of the things I initially noticed about your page was that um, you know, you were sharing recipes that were simple and easy, but evidence-based, but also not restrictive. And, um, you know, I think to your point, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who are sharing things that could be harmful. So I think that's just really good to keep in mind. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Totally. Um, so you don't take one-on-one clients anymore, but you do have, um, I think, a is it a group course that you have? Um, so I have two programs that are okay. kind of group based, um, but they're basically DIY, like go at your, not DIY, uh, go at your own pace. So you don't have to join and then, you know, do everything at a certain time, you know, week by week, it's really go at your own pace. Um, but you do have access to me directly in this private membership community. So, you know, you can pick my brain on anything, ask me any question, and I'm guaranteed, you know, to, to give you my time and my response. We do lives within the program, um, and I have two. I have Get Pregnant with PCOS, which is focused on PCOS symptom mastery and fertility and pregnancy. Um, so many babies from that program. I'm super proud of that program, which is why I keep running it. Um, and then I have my PCOS Boss Academy, which is all about PCOS symptom mastery, but permanent non-restrictive weight loss as well. So the kind of the, the no talk of fertility there, it's all kind of weight management in a, you know, in a, in a way that's doable, maintainable, um, and doesn't feel like you're on an elimination diet. None of that. That's awesome. So, um, so I run those two programs and I, they're reopening on August 31st, but, um, I'm, I typically run them a few times a year. Okay. Excellent. So the yeah. woman's dietitian.com. Yes. 
And her Instagram handle is the woman's dietitian. So everyone go follow Corey. She's got some amazing advice, recipes. Her energy is awesome. And, you know, now she's got a cute little, cute little baby here that (laughs) I'm sure we'll be hearing some more about, you know, kind of some things that we could all do to support, you know, fertility and a healthier lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Of course, Corey. Thank you so much for coming on today. It was incredibly insightful and I really appreciate you sharing your expertise. Absolutely. Anytime I could talk for like nine years about PCOS. I know. I know the feeling. It's a good, it's a good feeling. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me or applying for my next group coaching program, which starts October 1st, you can go to nutritionrewired.com. And as a reminder, I have been much better about sending out my newsletters this past month. So if you are interested in getting the latest evidence-based nutrition advice related to all things gut health, hormones. Today's topic was, is red meat bad for you, for example? So if you want these in your inbox, you can go to my website as well and subscribe to my newsletter. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.